98.1 FM, KPFT, Houston's Community Station. Howdy folks, this is Big Kev, your most excellent host of the Roots Rock Revolution. And you lucky folks, you're listening to KPFT, Houston, 90.1 FM, HD1. Check us out, you'll love it. I'm Sabali, a longtime supporter and content contributor to Pan-African Journal, urging you to call now to keep local stories and radio on the air. This year, thousands of teachers, students, parents, and staff will be adversely impacted by the current HISD administration selected by people from Austin to remove 28 libraries from local schools that need them the most. We need to keep updating you on those current issues that are affecting the state takeover of HISD, the largest school district here in Texas. Support Pan-African Journal in our efforts to keep you abreast of what's going on. Go online to kpft.org and make a $25, $50, or $100 donation. And please make sure to note in your donation that it's for Pan-African Journal. Hi, this is August. You're listening to Pan-African Journal. This is KPFT Houston. Stay tuned. This is Gerald Horn, historian, activist. I listen to Pan-African Journal on KPFT in Houston, and I hope you do too. Great Roy Ayers, long time ago. Good evening and welcome to Pan-African Journal. I'm Akua Holt. This is KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, streaming at kpft.org. In the entire African world, addressing how African people are participating in globalization, ways in which the rest of the world continues to exploit African resources, uncovering labor violations by corrupt politicians and Western government powers. Learn what's happening now in interviews with artists, activists, scholars, and a host of other experts each episode. Africa Now is also available on iTunes Podcast, Google Play Music, as well as SoundCloud. We spend the hour with Dr. Baba Ntangalizi Senyika, a veteran scholar, 
with 57 years of experience as a social justice warrior, academician, activist, organizer, and planner. He's also provided commentary for Capitalism, Race, and Democracy's MLK special for the past three years. All that and a whole lot more. Fahima Sek. Baba, welcome to What's at Stake and agreeing to come and share a little bit about your sojourn uh, with those in our listening audience. Well, thank you very much, Sister Fatima, for providing me this uh, opportunity to do a bit of sharing. I am honored that you uh, asked me to do so, and I look forward to our conversation. Now, you have been at this for a while, but we want to start out in the beginning where are you actually from? How did you come of age? I understand you're from Louisiana, if I'm not mistaken. Could you talk about your early beginnings and the things that shaped your consciousness? First, let me say, yes, I am a native of New Orleans. Although I was born in rural Louisiana in St. Landry Parish, which is the city of Opelousas. That was my birth city. My family was uh, farmers, if you would, uh, farmers and preachers, which was what the men tended to do. And I came from a very strong family, grandparents who had uh, nine children on my uh, mother's side and five on my father's side. And they were all both biologically strong and, and extended strong families that stayed together and uh, were very much rooted in their faith convictions, which uh, used to say influenced my life. And uh, that's where I was born. However, my parents split up. At an early age in my life, we moved back to uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, which is where I was raised, and that is what I call home for the entirety of, uh, of my life. I grew up in New Orleans in segregated schools, if you would, uh, all of my life. Uh, I never went to school with a white person at all. Though in the neighborhood that I lived in, one side of the neighborhood was virtually all African-Americans. And the other side of the street was virtually all white Americans in the lower ninth ward of New Orleans, which is the area that Katrina so badly damaged. I rode the bus to school in the morning, uh, getting up at 5.30 in the morning to get the bus by 6.30 to 7 o'clock, and went to school on the platoon system, which meant I was there from 7 in the morning to 12, and then I had to, to get out of school, the building, uh, to allow other students to come in for the 12 o'clock session. I, I had strong African-American teachers in high school. They, they were all degreed. Most of them had uh, master's degrees. They all had bachelor's degrees. They were all very competent. They were very loving and caring. They were clear that uh, we had a mission in life uh, that impacted me profoundly. I then uh, finished high school in New Orleans, Joseph S. Clark High School in 1959 and went on to uh, college to Dillard University in New Orleans, one of the HBCUs that really, 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 really left a profound imp imprint on my life and my consciousness, finished my bachelor's degrees, then went on to Boston University to get a master's degree in 1967 and then finished up a doctorate later on in southern New Hampshire. But it was this educational journey that uh, left its impact and its imprint, and a lot of Social movements happen during the context of my educational journey. I understand you also went back to teach at Dillard University and then eventually TSU. But let's uh, further unpack your sojourn in the academy. In the, in the second section, we'll look at your involvement in movements, if you will. But let's talk about your sojourn in the academy and how that all happened. I think you left off talking about pursuing your uh, doctoral degree. Well, the academy was always a place that I uh, enjoyed being immensely. I was raised to believe that education was important. My, my mother put me in school, by the way, when I was four years old. Uh, that had an impact as well. Dillard University is where I learned the mastery of the higher educational process where I got my first degree there uh, in biology, but I always had an involvement in political science and philosophy especially. That is where I learned to think more broadly than just where I live. That was the period where I won a scholarship to go to study in what was then called 
the Soviet Union, now called Russia. That scholarship was one that was won by myself and and, and three other um, African-American students, and that opened my eyes in a global kind of way that, to let me see some things that I had not uh, seen before. Uh, that's where my sense of how the world was functioning, uh, how our country functioned, how other countries functioned, that was where my sense of how countries work uh, was really deepened, and the, the learnings that I had developed in, in philosophy and political science at Dillard, and in, in addition to uh, my my training as a first as a biologist. And remember, Sputnik happened in 1957, which was the a, uh, the first out of space device that had been put up by any country, and um, that shocked shocked the entirety of the world. It shocked us, but it also convinced me that science really, really was important, and that was something worth studying. Uh, but at any rate, I, I learned fundamentally that uh, systems are uh, said to be one thing, but systems are something different. Regardless of the label they put on themselves, they are not what, what they necessarily claim. And that was an eye-opening experience, seeing that all over the world. And I knew already in our United States we were not who we said we were. We were not the democracy that we claim, and seeing other places in the world uh, reinforced that for me. And I learned how to uh, how to teach because I early became a teaching assistant early, uh, and that that convinced me that maybe the teaching and research and writing and speaking were all something that I that I could do when I finished my education. But in the middle of my education, when I was thinking I was working on one degree. I switched in 1967 and decided that I needed to go back to the social movement. Uh, that, of course, was influenced by uh, all of what I had gone through in SNCC in uh, 1960, uh, the sit-ins in 61, the Harlem rebellions in 64, and then the Watts in 65. All of that convinced me that I needed to use those educational tools in community with people uh, bringing about social change. and. That was the decision that I made, and I'm glad that I made that decision. When I got into the move back into the movement in '67, I was doing some lectures about the, the issue of black intelligence that had come into Boston, and uh, I was invited to lecture at Harvard and MIT. Eventually, that led to the offer of a, of a possible teaching position at what was then the, the second emerging black studies program in the country, the one at Harvard. In 1968, I was offered a teaching position there, and I taught there until 1974, and at MIT in uh, 1973, at Brown in 73 and 74. So that was the beginning of my teaching career, using the skills that I had learned uh, in the civil rights movement to help black students place themselves and become effective uh, agents of change for their community. So my learnings and teachings in science as a biologist helped me understand how the world functioned mechanically. And then my uh, my engagement in civil rights early on helped me to, to consolidate why things happen and what were the explanations and reasons for the way systems function that suggested to me there was a need for an overhaul in all of the systems or a fundamental kind of change, a radical change, some would say a revolutionary change, some would say but a fundamental change in the way this country worked, because it wasn't working for us and our people. It was working for some, but not all. And that is primarily what I saw as I moved around the world and as I moved through the uh, the institutions in Boston um, that were uh, supposedly uh, among the highest and most revered institutions of the country, but they were not all of that, to tell you the honest truth. So uh, that influenced my career to change what I did, and I made that change. I wound up teaching at Dillard, which is my alma mater, and then Texas Southern, uh, and then in 2014, after almost uh, 50 years in the classroom, I decided to give that up. But I was also doing development work uh, at the same time that I was doing all of the academic teaching. I was working in neighborhood, working in community working to translate black power concepts into pragmatic institutions that would empower people and help them uh, improve the status of their lives and help young people develop opportunities for themselves and help mayors and city councils to, to translate theoretical concepts about power 
uh, into practical expressions and manifestations of, of how you deliver goods and services to help actual communities and actual people. So I had all those things integrated together. My life has been holistic that way, and uh, that's what, what I come from in the era that I was raised up. We were all trained and raised, and we were encouraged to be holistic in everything that we did, that is to say to learn more than one discipline, develop more than one skill, and have one more than one direction for our lives. You're listening to Baba Dr. Ntangalisi Sanyika. The show is What's at Stake here on WPFW 89.3 on your FM dial, streaming at www.wpfwfm.org, a Pacifica station in the nation's capital. Now, uh, Baba, you talked about your entry into the academy and all of the training um, that you had um, in your particular discipline and then transitioning from the hard sciences to the social sciences. One of my mentors, the late Dr. Mary Rhodes Hoover, uh, introduced the concept of the scholar activist, which indeed you uh, still are. Um, how exactly did you embark upon the movement. I know you said it was simultaneously. I know oftentimes um, there are those that are in the academy, um, they write about the movements, but you actually are, as Dr. Uh, Hoover described, a scholar activist. Talk a little bit about, because um, you, you made reference to, to SNCC, and I want to, uh, uh, on the other side, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the uh, meetings that you chaired and your involvement in those movements. But I want to know how you transitioned um, from the academy and got involved simultaneously in the movement. Sure, that's a, that's an important question for for all of us to understand. In my in my era, when uh, when I was in high school, uh, we we lived at a time where the movement was a simultaneous part of our lives. Whatever we were interested in in high school in preparation for college, and, and that's how I was being uh, being tracked by my high school, Joseph S. Clark, which was academically one of the best high schools in the state of uh, the whole state of Louisiana, not just New Orleans. But I was being tracked to go to the next level, uh, specifically to go to college and to do something uh, with my life that uh, suggested I keep going for advanced degrees. And indeed, uh, that is what happened. I uh, I won uh, a scholarship to study as a student uh, after I graduated from high school. Prior, however, prior to entering college, I was one of the first students called the pre- in the pre-freshman program, where for eight weeks we lived on campus and we we basically learned most of the things you learned in your first year of college in eight weeks. So when we got to September to go to college, we were already ahead of the curve. And that put me in advance of everything. Uh, I was ahead of, of most of my peers uh, in, in undergraduate and continued to track that way. And my professors realized that and, of course, uh, encouraged me to expand and to grow, which is what allowed me to be a competitor for that scholarship that uh, we mentioned earlier that led me, led me abroad. But it was clear from some of the professors I had who saw me as uh, a person who could master multiple disciplines. So I did a lot of philosophy. I did a lot of uh, political science. Uh, I did a lot of natural science. But I did all the social sciences simultaneously. So when I left and went to graduate school, I was doing the master's degree. But I had already been involved with SNCC in 1960. I met, that's where I first met Dr. King, that's where I first met Marion Barry, uh, John Lewis, uh, Julian Bond, uh, Ella Baker, all the movement giants, and all of us who were activists, we were also students. We were students. Now, many of us dropped out, but I was, I was not one of those who dropped out. But that imprint that I was left on my consciousness at the 1960 meeting in October in Atlanta, Georgia, was a permanent imprint on my life. I was very much impacted by being in the presence of all the movement uh, students uh, and leaders of the movement and left inspired to continue to move even further. Then the sit-ins happened. 
which came to my city in New Orleans. I was a leader in the local movement the sit-ins, to do the sit-ins in New Orleans, led the demonstrations to desegregate Woolworths and then other places. Uh, we left uh, and did demonstrations from my campus, marching on uh, the, the downtown of the, of the city. Uh, we, we watched and saw things that were happening in other cities, the, the student movement across the country. So I, I was impacted by all of that. Plus, I had been impacted by Brown v. Board, uh, by, uh, by the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, by the Little Rock Nine in 1957, this, the first Civil Rights Act in 1967. The movement was in my fiber and in my soul. I couldn't get away from it even if I tried. So when I went to graduate school, which was in 1967, the Black Power Movement that hit the ground running, I was one of the people who was connected to that movement because that movement came out of SNCC with Stokely and uh, with Mukasa, Willie, Willie Ricks, uh, and all the activists. I was already connected to them. So uh, that connection helped me to understand what they were talking about. At the same time, the rebellions had happened in Harlem in 64 and Watson in 65, and then in Newark in 67 and Detroit in 67, now I had moved from the, the South and I had moved to, uh, to, to Boston for graduate school. You know, and then the rebellions happened. All the rebellions happened. So people at the academy were interested in what students were saying to them, which was that they wanted their education to be more relevant than just the academics that they had been, been offered in the traditional education. I was one of the people who had the capacity to engage in how the academy functioned because I was degreed and understand what was happening in the social movement because I was connected to the social movement. Uh, while I was in graduate school, I became the chairperson uh, of a major caucus in one of the uh, predominantly uh, Anglo churches in the country and was uh, moving around the country uh, at the same time that I was in graduate school. That was a burden, believe me, but it, it's one that I assumed and assumed gladly and got through that degree and at the same time was offered that teaching position because there were few African Americans who had uh, degrees that, that and who also had connections to the movement. I was grounded in the movement, both the civil rights movement and the newly emerging black power movement which very few people uh, at that time understood what black power was and, and what it was that was needed. Students saw myself as one of the few people who could combine all those things, academic competency, uh, movement connection, and an understanding of, of how you uh, change social systems. In addition to which, uh, I was gifted, I think, with the ability to teach, just the natural ability um, that I had developed throughout my life uh, because I did a, a lot of speaking and teaching when I was in high school and when I was uh, doing this as well in churches uh, and for civic organizations and did a lot of that uh, when I was in, in school because I was a teaching assistant when I was talking about when I was in college, etc. So I had the ability, I think, to translate ideas into understandable, uh, usable form for people. So it was not a coincidence that when I was in college with all that movement background and an understanding of social movement, which few people had, and an ability to translate complicated ideas and information to people in understandable form, and a connection to uh, the academy itself at a higher level, because I was at, at Boston University where I got my first degree. Uh, it was no accident that I was asked by the students first, would I consider uh, lecturing on the, the issue of, of black intelligence, which was a real controversial issue in the 60s. And then subsequently that led to the possibility of teaching in the newly emerging black studies department at, at Harvard, which is something that I accepted to do as one of the first uh, faculty members in that department, along with certain renowned scholars such as Ephraim Isaacs, the great Ethiopian scholar, uh, Orlando Patterson, uh, and a variety of other scholar activists, because that's what we all were. We were not just uh, academicians. Some of us were, but uh, about half of that faculty were scholar activists, people who 
talk about the problems, but who also did something about the problem. And that's what we encouraged all of our students to be. Uh, among my students at that time were Lonnie Guineer, the great civil rights attorney. Uh, Cornell West was one of my students at that time. Uh, Jay Madari Kamara, Yvonne Plinam Alameen, just a variety of other students, so many that I have, whose names I have forgotten after all of these years. But they were that first generation of uh, outstanding public intellectuals that uh, we produced who then went on to do other good and great things uh, in the social movement and, and, uh, and with their lives. So it was, a, it was almost like there was a natural connection between those of us who were products of the civil rights movement and the ability to help students in the academy become uh, scholar activists and get a, get a grip on how they could do more than one thing, to be a multidisciplinary person living and working in the academy, but living and, and working as well in the community and linking those together. That became what was one's aspiration, not just to be a scholar uh, or not just to be somebody who got a degree, but somebody who used that degree to do something good to help the community become uh, an empowered space where people could uh, try to live a better life. And that's how we trained our students to become scholar activists uh, with an ethical and moral commitment to do something good and righteous for the people in the community. And we still insisted, even to this day, uh, as I was teaching at Dillard uh, up until 2010 and Texas Southern until 2014, we still emphasized the notion of scholar activists. And the concept of the community versus community diversity uh, has seemingly revived and is back on the radar screen in this day. So that those were great days and great times. I wound up teaching in a total of 12 universities in my career, in, including uh, teaching in Africa at the Open University, uh, you know, in Tanzania. Those were great, great, great teaching moments as well. And uh, presently, I just simply uh, do selected lectures and, and reflections and writing uh, about uh, about those periods. But that's how all of that happened for me. And um, I felt good. I felt that I made a difference by being able to understand uh, how the world functioned and be able to explain it to people and help people develop the skills and the tools to navigate how to change the world to improve uh, their status as well as to articulate their humanity as black people. Now, uh, now Dr. Baba, um, the concept of the community, uh, when you had in the latter part of the 20th, 20th century, in terms of my experience of it, in the 80s and 90s, you had the rise of uh, Afrocentricity, where yeah. people like uh, the late historian John Henry Clark, who said, history is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass people use to find themselves. And that pretty much sums up what was happening in the community that helped shape my consciousness um, in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, people like, uh, as I said, John Henry Clark, Dr. Ben Yurkanen, uh Dr. Leonard Jeffries, and we had access uh -huh. to scholars um, and the university and the community came together in a community, um, what? as you are articulated. And we did, we had, uh, study groups. We read, we weren't, uh, doing, uh, YouTube university like people are today. And we were reading and delving into those bibliographies, um, and, and actually gaining knowledge and, um, uh, you know, people like Malefi Asante, who founded the first right, PhD. Right. Yes, example. yes, mm -hmm. yes. And the thing is, is this is one of the things that inspired me, seeing folks that looked just like me that were aspiring, acquiring, and achieving. We're going to take a break in a few moments, but what I wanted to say is that um, the theme for... Uh, Black History Month is the African American community, community and the arts, and right, right, the right. arts. I saw that. Yes, and you know, and I just wanted to share that uh, Carter G. Woodson initially uh, had Negro History Month, 
and he was the Negro History Week. I'm sorry, Negro History Week. Who and he started the uh, Asala, which is actually right. on the campus of my alma mater at Howard University. And then students at Fisk University uh, did the first Black History Month uh, celebration in '69. Um, and then 70, I think one of the presidents made it an official observation. Am, am I correct? 1976, Gerald Ford. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, what I'm going to do is we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want you to talk about um, your actual, uh, some of the meetings and movements that you were actually involved in facilitating and how the arts, I know that the groups like Sweet Honey and the Rock and the songs that were very much a part of the movie. I want you to talk about that when we come back from this break. You're listening to Pacifica Radio and we are here uh, talking with Baba Sandiki and we will uh, be back on the other side of this. This is KPFT 90.1 FM Houston streaming at kpft.org. Gil Scott Heron said, The revolution will not be televised. And yet we've seen oppression, suffering, and resistance streamed in real time across this country and around the world, from Palestine to D.C. In times like these, it's imperative to have a station that centers justice, reflects hope, and fosters solidarity throughout our music and public affairs programming. We offer you the opportunity to partner with us in this critical work of liberation by donating during our Winter Pledge Drive. We'll be here to chronicle the revolution. Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times. We have traveled a long way this evening to be here. We are grateful that we are able to sing these songs, voicing how we feel about the things that we see in life. And we think that it's very important to maintain freedom. So we say, we who believe in freedom, we cannot rest. We cannot be complacent. We may stay alert, stay active, and stay involved. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. Oh, how can you rest? We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Until the killing of black men, black mothers. Ella's song by Sweet Honey in the Rock, and I'm Fahima Sack. Today we spend the hour with Baba Dr. Ntangalizi Sanyika, who has served for capitalism, race, and democracy. He's done a commentary on MLK Day for the past several years that we've been on the air. It's a national program, and I just thought it was important as we embark on Black History Month to bring Baba in. And as I mentioned earlier, the theme is African American in the arts. Uh, Dr. Antangalizi, the arts, uh, freedom songs were very much a part of the movement. And I want you to talk about, um, in addition to uh, some of the meetings that you facilitated and presided, how 
uh, the arts and freedom songs were very much a part of the civil rights movement and movement building in particular? Well, thank you for that question. And let me uh, say that I really appreciated your playing Ella's song. And I want to just give mention to uh, Ella Baker, who is often an overlooked giant of the movement. She was one of the co-founders of SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, that was Dr. King's organization that was formed in 1957 uh, in my hometown of New Orleans. But more importantly, she was one of the persons who facilitated the organization and development of SNCC and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and was one of its principal advisors for a very long period of time. And she was the connection between the uh, grown-ups, so to speak, led by Dr. King and others, and uh, the student movement that uh, was emerging through SNCC and was a source of enormous advice and, and a very wise counsel about uh, the best ways that she thought we should be organized. And she's not given enough credit for her contributions. Uh, Ella Josephine Baker, if you like that name, I think the former singer had uh, an influence on her parents in naming her. But she is someone who needs to be studied a lot more and uh, I just wanted to say I appreciate hearing hearing that. And you're a sweet runny, honey and the rock who were a, a movement group who came out of the civil rights movement. Uh, they particularly came, I think, out of the, of the SNCC Freedom Singers, which was a, a central part of the movement. Everything that was done in SNCC and in the movement, music was always a, a, an essential part of everything we did. Anytime we did demonstrations, or we did the sit-ins, or we did uh, boycotts, any direct action that we took in the movement, there was always music, because music was a source of faith. Music rooted us in the belief that we would win, and especially singing the music of our own culture, the music of our own faith traditions, the music that affirmed our belief that there was a source of power greater than any white supremacy ever was, and that 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 source and power would eventually prevail and bring justice to the land. And we saw that indeed happening. But I want to say that I don't think there's been a time period in the, the modern-day history of the movement where the arts did not play a part. Now, of course, we typically associate arts with culture, and it is culture, but culture is not just the arts. Culture is far more inclusive than just the arts. It includes all the arts as well as everything associated with the people's way of life. But anyway, in the 60s, there is a plethora, a large volume of music that accompanied everything that we did in the movement. And the SNCC Freedom Singers and all their different uh, versions of the SNCC Freedom Singers were the, a, a central movement organization that was per perpetuating the music itself. People like uh, Harry Belafonte and Portier were among those who also brought their artistry to many movement events and raised the funds to, in, in support of the movement in addition to providing their talent. But every city that uh, was engaged in any kind of direct action, I guarantee you that there was a musical component, that, that expression of the arts, which uh, inspired people to believe that they would win that particular victory. And you will find all over the Internet civil rights music as the art form that made an enormous difference to all of us. Of course, the other forms were writing. Uh, people like James Baldwin, especially, who wrote all sorts of books, The Fire the Next Time, if you remember that, that one. And uh, I had the privilege of meeting him uh, a number of different times because he came and, and lectured and inspired all of us as well, you know, about the civil rights movement, convinced us that as youngsters, that we were on the right track. So we were Im impacted by the inspiration that the arts offered us when we felt we were going into battle about the issues. However, when the movement transitioned into the black power and black consciousness stage, uh, there was another level of, of uh, culture, if you would, and the arts that was impacted, that impacted the movement. And that it was something called the black arts movement that was, uh, based in uh, New, New York area, and in particular, uh, one of those uh, great artists was uh, uh, someone who was named Leroy Jones, who became uh, Imamu Amidi Baraka. Uh, I developed a very, very close relationship with him 
uh, in the 60s through his spirit house uh, in Newark, which was one of his uh, cultural groups and cultural organizations. Um, and if you all remember, uh, Baraka has, has written any, any number of, uh, of plays and, and books uh, uh, about his perception of the world and the conditions of the world. But he became, uh, he, he left his, his uh, writing career to become uh, basically an activist in the movement who used his skill and his notoriety in the movement, in, in, you know, in the arts movement, and brought it to the civil rights movement, and everywhere we went, um, excuse me, to, to the black power phase of, of the freedom movement itself. Freedom movement had two two phases. One was civil rights, the other was black power. The demarcation line would be from 1966, everything going forward. We associate with the black power movement, everything before with the civil rights movement, but they were almost seamless, but they were not quite. Seamless. Well, let's unpack that a little. We started off talking about Ella Baker, and she was instrumental in encouraging Kwame Torre and others to right, form SNCC. So let's unpack that transition and, and the pivotal role that Ella Baker played in that. Because, you know, oftentimes we learn Black History Month, we hear these names and what have you. We want to get into the nuances. You know, you referenced Marion Barry, who also was a member of SNCC. Shout out to the, the SNCC Legacy Project that's here in Washington, D.C., and they have uh, activities uh, going on periodically, and I'm sure they'll be doing something uh, very soon. But let's talk about the nuance. That, you know, John Lewis and Marion Barry, as you mentioned, and Frank Smith, um, talk about Ella Baker's involvement in the the encouraging of the development of SNCC. Well, Ella, as I had mentioned earlier, uh, was was a, a key actor and key player in uh, the whole of the civil rights movement. But she was a, she sort of saw herself as a behind the scenes person, and so uh, she wasn't one who was necessarily in the public eye because she wasn't out there. Uh, act, being actively involved in, uh, in you know demonstrations and uh, direct action and all of that, but she was very much a behind the scenes person. Bubba, uh, I, I call yeah. that that's that's how I like to operate. I call that being incognito. <laughs> incognito. Oh, <laughs> uh, in her case, and black incognito yes. and black. Yeah, yeah, because uh, that was the that was the transition itself. Uh, but but Ella. In many ways, Ella is what kept SNCC um, intact in its early days, in its formative days, and its and into its uh, its transition days, because she understood the dynamics of organizational development and social change, and that was very much needed by the young uh, youngsters in, in SNCC who uh, themselves came out of their, their college education but were not veteran actors in social change movement. Now, there were others who were uh, far more developed who had come from other social movements, to be sure, especially those who were associated with, uh, uh, with, uh, with CORE, especially the Congress on Racial Equality and the Fellowship for Renewal. But those of us in SNCC were hitting the ground as college students. So we didn't have that depth of experience about social change, and we needed assistance with that, but we did not feel that we wanted um, to be, um, we wanted to be instructed by our elders in how to do what we wanted to do because we were aggressive and we wanted to engage in direct action. Uh, we wanted to have sit-in protests you know, and, and other kinds of demonstrations. We were inspired by what uh, what Dr. King had done with the Montgomery bus boycott. No no kidding at all. We were super inspired by that. But that also inspired us to see change beyond that, beyond that dimension. Now, with that Mississippi march with uh, James Meredith, uh, which when, when he was uh, engaged in that Mississippi march, and that's the one where he was shot, that was a turning point in history because that is where um, Brother Stokely, uh, also known as Kwame Ture, and Brother 
Mukasa, also known as Willie Ricks, uh, collaborated, collaborated on articulating another way to do the movement because uh, SNCC had been involved in the Atlanta Project in 1964. And in that Atlanta Project, that's really where they had experimented with black power without calling it that. But the whole concept of control of space, control of place, control of resources, and control of the organization were things that SNCC had already been practicing and experimenting with in 1964. So in 1966, when, when, we were, when, when the movement, because I was, I was still up north then, when the movement uh, was engaged in that Mississippi battle in support of uh, uh, our brother Meredith, that is where uh, the SNCC activists saw it was necessary for there to be something else. If black people were the majority in those green counties in Alabama uh, and other places in the South, the notion was that there should be power. There should be control of the places that we lived in, which was the core concept of black power that led uh, Kwame Ture and as well as uh, uh, Mukasa to the, to the notion that power was essential. Uh, however, we don't want to uh, overlook the role that the African liberation movements were playing and in influencing all of us in that concept, because every week, every month, there was some decolonization occurring on the African continent, and that was a profound, profound influence on us. But anyway, the arts movement itself in the in the civil um, excuse me in the black power phase of the movement was uh, was very dominant in people like Amiri Baraka, uh, Paki Mabuti, uh, Larry Neal, uh, 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 Sonia Sanchez, uh, Nikki Giovanni, all of these writer uh, writer particularly writers and poets, uh, dance groups were prominent in the whole of the black. Uh, consciousness movement of that era of the 60s. There was no movement without the artists there. The artists conveyed the message to the people. The complex messages of black power were conveyed by the artists through their song, through their dance, uh, through their uh, articulations, you know, through their poetry. When the uh, people like Gil Scott Heron, who broke new ground... uh, The last poets... Oh yeah, the last poets, the, the Watts pro- the, the Watts poets, the the Watts poets. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. And every everybody developed the last poets after the re, the re, true last poets. Every community developed a, a counterpart. I'm oh, sorry, the Watts prophets. Watts prophets. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody developed a counterpart to the to the last poets or people who did poetry of that type, uh, which was a revolutionary change in, in people who who figured out how to use uh, black art as a tool to to help people understand and inspire them to change. As I said, my relationship with Amiri Baraka was a very close one for years. Uh, I saw the black art movement from the inside. Uh, I consider myself an, an artist of social change. That was my art. <laughs> but uh, but uh, there was a strong presence uh, throughout the black consciousness movement, without which I don't think we would have been able to move it forward. And I'm thankful that um, that we had enough black artists who decided that they were going to make that change, that they were going to move the agenda from from the traditional artists uh, in places like the Greenwich Village, Greenwich Village art scene, that kind of cultural art, uh, to something more radical and more progressive to advance the black liberation movement. So I was fortunate enough to see that and be a part of that, uh, through, especially through the Congress of African People, which is one of the groups that, that, uh, that I chaired you know, during that period. But the artists were there uh, in, in, in all the early phases of the uh, transition into the black power movement, helping us to grasp it and helping us to perpetuate it and helping us to articulate its fundamental messages about the importance of black power and just being black. Because you remember, you know, at that, at that time there were, there were fights if you said you were black or called somebody black. But the, the artists helped us to grasp that black meant culture, it meant consciousness, it meant commitment, uh, in addition to, you know, just to what you look like, but it was beyond just what you look like, but it was uh, something that emerged out of your consciousness of who you are and who you are and who our people were. So we are thankful that the black artists were there because just talking about black power would not would not have been sufficient. But but doing uh, black power as articulated by the artists 
I think, was a, was a difference maker in the whole of the movement. So we thank them for that, and we know that this year that's the emphasis of a uh, uh, Black History Month. And so, you know, a, a tree without roots cannot grow. And, uh, and so we're going back to that piece of the roots and see uh, how it informs us about how we move our agenda forward. Yeah. You're listening to Pacifica Radio. I'm Fahima Sek, and my guest is Baba Dr. Ntangalisi Senyika. Franz Fanon said that each generation must, out of relative obscurity, discover its mission, mission. fulfill it, or betray it. Now, before John Lewis transitioned at the Congressional Black Caucus, I think this was the first... ALC that they were having after coming out of COVID. It seemed like we're back in COVID. But he, there was a panel with members of Black Lives Matter and Angela Davis, and it was contended that BLM is a natural transition and the passing of the mantle, if you will, because John Lewis, I remember seeing him, even though he was ailing, he was over at BLM Plaza marching with the people. And I wanted to, in the remaining time that we have, can you talk about how you see the state of the movement now and what uh, you think the landscape looks like in the uh Yes, and thank you for mentioning uh, John again. I fortunately had the opportunity to spend some time with him in his last days and have had conversations about where he saw things and uh, was very much informed by his perspective. Miss him, miss him, miss him, miss him, but still doing good trouble. Well, I look at things in two ways. One is there's some, some larger global threats to humanity. One is that there's a threat to democracy, the climate change problem, and there's issue of species survival. If the species, homo sapiens, uh, modern humans, are not careful, we can implode. We can mess up the air. We can mess up the water. We can mess up the food supply. Uh, we can become so uh, hatred of one another that we can destroy one another or we can just disrupt the equilibrium of nature that destroys us. And certainly, climate change is no hoax. It's no joke. We've got to deal with it. We see all these weather events that are happening to us. Day becomes night and night becomes day. You don't know what's, whether it's winter or summer. All those things are real, and we cannot pretend that they are not. And uh, democracy is at stake, uh, especially here in the United States. And I think that we have to make sure that we do everything we can to protect the limited democracy that we have. I am of no illusion that we have a democracy here. We have a limited democracy here, and but we still need to protect it because uh, those who want to take it away are also aligned on the side of white supremacy, and we still must fight the battle of white supremacy. I think we should focus a lot of our energy and time on reparations because uh, we're not going to catch up just using the regular system uh, in this country to achieve justice. We're not going to catch up anytime soon uh, because that would require massive redistribution of the of the wealth of the country to uh, actually do what is needed for us to, to gain any level of parity. I think there have been calculations that said with the wealth gap being as, as big as it is and as large and wide as it is, it'll be a long time coming before we actually close it and catch up and gain parity. Reparations becomes a, a, another way to look at that and to do that, not only just in terms of cash uh, options, but development options as well. And I think that we need to focus and spend more time uh, with the notion of, uh, of, of reparations in our community. Uh, I think we need to definitely, 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 all of us need to do work in Black History Month. Uh, we need to tell our story, the greatness that we have come from, all the contributions we have made to the world, the contributions we have made to the United States, uh, that this is our land, this is our our territory too. We built it, uh, we suffered and died and bled in it, and we've got a stake in it. Uh, however, I also encourage us to look at the option of going to other places in the black world as one of the, the things that we can do, because I think we had the right to be uh, African people in Africa, and if we choose to exercise that right, we, we ought to be able to do it. So I encourage people who are thinking about that, to look at that very seriously, 
still as a right that we had that we never got to exercise, and it should be on everybody's plate. So basically I'm saying, number one, I think we the species may be at risk, and we've got to ask some questions about what is it we do to help uh, reduce uh, the, the uh, exposure that we have and to look at how we are over-consuming in, in this society where there is more need and to focus on more on reparations and other issues to attack white supremacy. Thank you so much, Baba. Thank you so much. We spent the hour with Dr. Baba Antangalisi Senyika as we kick off Black History Month. I'm Fahima Sek, and I'll see you next month. I'm Akua Holt, and this is Pan-African Journal. Make sure you go online to kpft.org to make a donation to this program and others. Keep free speech alive. Here is a poem by Obadike Kamau, and this is from a collection entitled Death Row Poets, organized by Pat Hardwell, who used to be a voice on the prison show here at KPFT. Our last poem will be read by It's by a close friend of mine, Mr. Eugene Broxton. He's an older man. He's an innocent man. He was convicted out of Channel View. He has been on death row since 1992, I believe. And he wrote a poem called Judge Ye Not. It's a powerful, powerful poem. And I often read this one at executions, too. Mr. OBDK. Eugene Broxton has been on death row since September 18, 1992. Innocent and convicted twice by all white juries. I spend my days reading, writing poetry, and making origami. I do not write as much as I used to since my health is failing. When I did write, I wrote from the heart and my inner soul. Please look to your inner soul when you are reading the poetry. And uh, this poem is named Judge Ye Not. And of course, this is a religious truth, asking others to judge not that ye not be judged. Judge ye not. Have you walked in the shoes of the person you judge? Have you shared their most intimate thoughts? Have you known of the tears, the doubts, and the fears, or the battles that person has fought? Have you shared in the secrets that lie in the heart When they don't understand, they can deal offhand. But trusting in me, your eyes confide, holding nothing, telling no lies. Then suddenly, I was startled at my own reflection. Your eyes mirrored my imperfection. So who was I at? Who did I really see? Was it you, or was it me, or am I you? and you are me. This program is for supporting KPFT and get your friends and your colleagues to listen and to become members. Thank you very much. And that was the voice of the great Dr. Obadike Kamau, former programmer and former interim general manager here at KPFT, who is now an ancestor. We're going to miss you, Obadike. Again, I want to invite you to a couple of events here in Houston, a poetic circle in honor of Dr. Obadike Kamau. Join a gathering of poets as they pay tribute to our brother, Dr. Obadike Kamau, through a literary and poetic exchange on Sunday, February the 18th, from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock p.m. Central Time at the University of Houston Blafford Museum. Entrance 18 off of Elgin Street and park in the visitor garage. The first 20 people free parking validation. We hope to see you there. For more information, follow Israel McLeod on Instagram. Call the Blafford Gallery or... Call 281-935-6950. Additionally, a memorial service will be held for Dr. Obadike Kamau on Saturday, February 24, 2024, from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Shrine of the Black Madonna, 5309 Martin Luther King Boulevard, 
77021. Hi, this is Buddy Monlock. I'm always happy to be back in Houston and here in KPFT in the new studio. It's great to be here. I don't know how many times I've been on live here. It's, it's really fun to come in and talk with the DJs and play some songs live. I really enjoy that. So yeah, please keep listening to KPFT. It's important and they're the ones who are playing the kind of music that you love and that I love and that me and my friends make. They're kind of holding the torch for us all here. So uh, keep listening to KPFT and uh, maybe 